from Pete Sampras, A Champion's Mind. 1992, my conversation with commitment. Just weeks after the debacle of my Davis Cup debut, I began working in earnest with Tim Gullickson. Joe Brandy had been good to have around to organize things and crack the whip. He had worked me hard, getting me out early to run, forcing me to take part in two-on-one drills. And while he knew the fundamentals well, I can't think of a single thing he taught me that became part of my secret knowledge as a top pro. It would be very different with Tim. It took just a few days for my relationship with Tim to gel. It usually takes time to break the ice with me, but Tim got the job done quickly because he was such a social, good-natured guy. We had separate rooms at hotels, but it was more like I had a college roommate. Tim always wanted us to hang out in my room or his. One time, I wanted to get a little time by myself, so when Tim followed me back to my room, I tried to give him a hint. I said, Tim, I have to make a phone call. It's kind of private. No problem, he said. I retreated to my room, and Tim stopped to talk for a moment with the concierge. We were staying in one of those fancy hotels where we had a concierge of our own right on the floor. Tim was talking with the lady, and when I poked my head out of my room two hours later, he was still talking with her. He hadn't even left the floor. When we first went to Australia together in 1992, Tim would come to my room every night, and we would order room service, talk, watch television. I guess he liked the company, because he had a twin brother and was accustomed to having him around all the time, even when they played on the tour. And Tim was a family man. His wife, Rosemary, was acknowledged as one of the nicest of spouses on a tour on which even the girlfriends and wives could be competitive. He was really in his element when there were a lot of people around. Tim was curious about everything in a way I wasn't, and had opinions about everything in a way that I didn't. The way he expressed his feelings so freely seemed unusual to me. It was good for me to see that you could do that. But even though Tim was opinionated, he was open-minded and decent. He would give you the shirt off his back. From the very beginning of our relationship, he was full of questions. Questions about my tennis, my life, my family. I didn't realize it until later, but he was opening and loosening me up. From the start, it was me, the insecure, unsophisticated kid, who needed his space. A relationship with a coach is a tricky thing to manage, especially for a young player. When you hire a coach, you're to some degree hiring a new best friend, someone in whom you choose to invest your trust. But I was always wary of getting too involved emotionally. I'm naturally aware of boundaries and always thought you played by certain rules, mutual respect being the chief one, and not unloading all your problems on someone else being another. At times, my way must have been hard for Tim, and later Paul Anacone, because a coach is supposed to be a confidant, and usually wants to be your confidant. Tim and I sometimes had a little tug of war going. He would probe and pry, and I would resist revealing how I really felt or what I thought. That even happened in tennis terms. I was trying to figure out my game, yet I was reluctant to reveal my concerns, even to a coach. In fact, I confessed weakness and confided in a coach that way only once in my career, and it was much later, as you'll learn. I never wanted to come across as vulnerable or insecure about my tennis, not even to my coach, no matter how much I was struggling. I always had my guard up about that, even as Tim became a close friend and something of a big brother figure. Maybe I was too cautious, too closed off. 
Coaching me demanded a lot of reading between the lines, and Tem, like almost all great coaches, was good at that. I've been told that artists are often very reluctant to discuss their own work, as if the magic would somehow go out of the process if they did. I can understand that, even though I wasn't making art. And if my reticence asked him to read between the lines, my stoic nature probably made some parts of his life easier. It wasn't like we didn't talk about tennis. We talked a lot about tennis, and we watched the game and played a lot. What we didn't do was obsess about my tennis, and I never used Tim as a therapist. By nature, I'm not emotionally needy, so I tended not to take many people deeply into my life. That kept them from having undue influence or controlling me, and saved me having to rebel against their control, something that happens pretty often in coaching relationships. I was more self-reliant than that. I wanted help with and support for my game on an as-needed basis, and beyond that I always kept a healthy emotional distance. I internalized my emotions, even when it was just Tim and me working out or preparing for a tournament. I gave Tim his space too, instead of demanding that everything be all about me all the time. It's got to be exhausting, always dealing with a needy player. The best coaches out there develop tricks for getting their jobs done, and some of the ploys are strategies you might use on a kid. For example, a common technique for getting a great player to make some change in his game is to plant the idea in a conversation and then manipulate the discussion in a way that allows the player to take ownership of the idea, like it was his, not yours. It seems transparent, but it works. Tim never had to resort to that kind of stuff with me. But he did need to know what to say, when to say it, and how to say it. That part is critical, probably for any coach, because top players aren't like journeymen, willing to do anything to get better. They already have great games and great pride. Often sensitivity is part of the package. Over the next year or two, I would come to know all of Tim's war stories. How he and his twin brother Tom had made the big time starting from the least likely of tennis outposts on Alaska, Wisconsin. They taught the game for a while in clubs in the Midwest, raising seed money for their crack at the tour. I knew all of Tim's big matches as a pro by heart, I swear. I could practically recite point by point Tim's biggest win, his upset of John McEnroe on Wimbledon's famous graveyard court, number two. If we were out to dinner with other people, I could bust his chops and make him squirm by feigning ignorance and innocently asking him about matches that he knew darned well he had told me about a few hundred times before. Then, I would sit back and grin. But Tim wasn't blowing his own horn with all that tennis chatter. He was a real student of the game. That rare combination of a guy who played at a high level, he won three tour singles titles and 15 in doubles, and was ranked as high as number 15 in singles but also loved it with the purity and the wide-eyed enthusiasm of a fan. When it came to the X's and O's, one of the first things Tim did was get me to shorten my practice sessions. This was something Tim learned from Jimmy Connors, who may have practiced less in terms of minutes spent than any other top player. Jimmy was legendary for his short, intense practices. He sometimes practiced for as few as 45 minutes, but always with total focus and purpose. He ran for every ball, hit his best shots, and kept up the pressure all the way. He could wear out a guy accustomed to two-hour practices in less than half that time. With Jimmy, you didn't play two points and then stop, drink some Gatorade, and chit-chat. Tim made a few technical adjustments to my game, 
Some of them were simple, but critical. Like his theory that I ought to overplay to protect my backhand in order to make opponents think I was looking to hit the big forehand. That made many of them try to squeeze the ball into a very small backhand window. It seems so simple, but just moving over a few feet when you return can make a huge difference in how your opponent is going to approach and play points, if you have the return to back it up. That tactic seemed to work throughout my career, especially in matches against Andre. He may be pressed a little on his first serve, cutting it too fine as he tried to sneak it to my backhand, or to blow it by the forehand down the tee in the ad court. That left me looking at more second serves, which were then easier to take with the forehand. The strategy also worked against Michael Chang big time, because Michael's serve was relatively weak and easy to attack with a big forehand return. At the start of our relationship, Tim thought I was getting a little handsy, inclined to use my hands loosely to compensate for a lack of technical discipline. In other words, I was a little lazy. Hands and wrists play a role in almost all of your shots, but they shouldn't be doing work intended for your arms, feet, and torso when it comes to hitting a firm, penetrating shot. It's especially tempting for players with good touch to get handsy, and they always pay a price in the way of less weight and penetration on their shots. Tim firmed up my backhand volley and slice, or underspin, shot. He had me shorten up my backhand slice motion to get a little more weight behind the shot, even if it meant less spin, a la Ken Rosewall, whose famous slice was surprisingly firm and heavy. Soon my backhand produced fewer floaters. It penetrated better and went through the court more quickly. That made it harder to attack. On the backhand volley, we focused on getting my entire body down lower to meet the ball. Dropping the racket head always robs a shot of pace. It's one of those things handsy people do. But the firmest volleys are hit more decisively, with more weight behind the racket. That calls for a little positioning, which is a little more work, but it paid off. These tunings all helped, and shortening up my backswings on all my returns was of critical importance in my transformation into a good grass court player. But the biggest area of concern for Tim was my attitude on court. I tended to slump and slouch, especially when things weren't going my way. Anyone can play great tennis when he's firing on all cylinders. The challenge is to play well enough to win when you're not at your best. There's a sneering inner judge in all of us, and a big part of being successful is tuning him out. And sometimes you have to fight through the indifference and fatigue you sometimes feel, even at big events. Instead of listening to that judge when he says you're lousy, or should pack it in because you're tired and there's always next week, that's when you need to suck it up and act like a man. Hang on, fight on, show the pride of a champion. Tim understood that I wasn't fully evolved as a competitor. I was a little soft. He kept telling me never to worry about what happened on the last point or the one before. He wanted me to intimidate opponents with my bearing as well as my game, and it drove him nuts when I slouched. But I'm a lanky guy with pretty wide shoulders, so the slouch was deceptive. People described my hangdog look a million times in print, but there was a big difference between young hangdog and old hangdog. Early in my career, I slouched and wore a grim expression that advertised my discouragement. Later, the grim look denoted absolute focus, and the slouch hinted of a gathering storm. Some people even suggested that I was a sandbagger, looking one way but playing another.
As a blue-collar type guy, Tim was all about the work, all about wringing every bit of potential out of my game. That's what he and his twin brother Tom had done to make it on the pro tour. Tim tried to turn me into a rough-and-tumble, confident, take-it-as-it-comes guy. It was a tough task, and the results were definitely mixed, because in the end, I was built differently from Tim. And a leopard doesn't change its spots. The Davis Cup debacle was still fresh in my mind in early 1992, and as an old-school, Davis Cup-loving kind of guy, Tim put priority on helping me wipe the bitter taste of that Lyon final out of my mouth. As it turned out, the opportunity came up the following January, shortly after the Australian Open. After an exhausting 1991, I chose to work with Tim instead of making the trip to Melbourne. In the first round of the 92 competition, the United States had been drawn to play Argentina, and we were the hosts. The USTA decided to play in Hawaii on hard courts, knowing that the location would appeal to our top players, who were likely to be traveling homeward after going deep in the draw in Australia. The tie worked out exactly as planned and hoped for me. Tom Gorman was very upbeat, and he really wanted me to do well. We still had all those team meetings, but I didn't mind them as much the second time around. I played the first rubber, and after losing the first set, I played with authority and confidence to beat Martin Haidte. My teammates did their share and we swept 3-0. That put us in the March quarterfinal against what was then still Czechoslovakia. By luck, we again had the home court advantage. The USTA decided to hold the tie at Sonesta Sanibel Resort in Fort Myers, Florida. I was returning to the place where I'd made my debut as a Davis Cup hitting partner in 1989, on a team that featured Andre Agassi and Michael Chang, playing against Paraguay. On that occasion, the $2,500 Dan Goldie and I got as hitting partners was a welcome paycheck. Now, I was back at Sanibel and sharing the singles duties with Andre. I was starting to take more pride in Davis Cup, and I was certainly more comfortable with the nature of the challenge. In fact, I began to invest a lot of emotion in it. Andre was a big Davis Cup guy, but the team still belonged to the ultimate U.S. Davis Cup warrior, John McEnroe. He was winding down his career and mostly playing doubles, but he was still the glue that held the squad together. Todd Martin, who would become a good friend over the years, was a hitting partner on that 1992 squad. During one practice before the tie, McEnroe finished a point, looked at Todd sitting on the sideline, and barked, Towel! Not, Towel please, or Can you get me a towel? Just, Towel! I happened to make eye contact with Todd at that moment, and saw that he was surprised by McEnroe's gruff manner. He took a towel and sort of half-heartedly threw it toward John. I suppressed my urge to laugh, because I understood exactly what Todd was thinking. Who the hell do you think you are? But being a lowly hitting partner, he could say nothing. We talked about the little incident that night, and I knew that Todd was pissed. To this day, when I see Todd in a hallway or a locker room, I glance at him, wink, and bark, Towel! and he knows exactly what I'm talking about. I split my singles matches in Fort Myers. I beat Karol Novacek, but lost to Peter Korda. Andre emerged the hero, pulling our 3-2 win by taking the fifth and decisive match over Novacek. My tournament results early in 1992 were so-so. Tim and I were just getting rolling. I would go deep in one event and struggle in another and failed to win a title until late April. But then I had perhaps my most consistent season on European clay, 
reaching the semifinals in Nice and the quarters at the Italian and French Open. The next stop was the Wimbledon tune-up at London's Queen's Club, where I lost to Brad Gilbert for the second time that year. At Wimbledon, I lost to Goran Ivanisevic in the semis, still hating the grass all the way. The tennis was lightning fast. The balls were hard and they flew like bullets. Goran served me off the court, but that wasn't just because of his superior firepower. It was partly because I was a flawed competitor. I got down on myself in that match, which is very easy to do on grass when the other guy's firing aces left and right, and you see your chances of breaking serve degenerating from slim to none with each passing bomb. Grass demands more patience and a higher threshold for frustration than any other surface. Although I was happy to reach the semis, the experience harkened back in some ways to my loss to Jim in the previous US Open. I didn't really dig deep enough into myself against Goran. No one had to tell me that. I'm not even sure anyone noticed. I knew. I left Wimbledon looking forward to my comfort zone, the US hardcourt season. First though, I won a big clay court event in Kitzbühel, Austria, beating some very solid players, including Alberto Mancini, who at the time was one of the three or four best players on red dirt. It's probably my second best win on clay. I was in good shape for the Olympic Games in Barcelona, where I had a good run, given the slow red clay surface. I lost in the third round to the Russian clay expert Andrei Cherkosov, 6-3 in the fifth. My game seemed to be coming together again, and returning to the States, I went on a rampage. I won Cincinnati and Indianapolis back-to-back, -back, with wins over Edberg, Lindell, Becker, and Courier. I rolled into New York riding a wave of confidence. I felt no pressure at all, like I had the previous year. I was comfortable being, on any given day, one of the top three players in the world. I carried a winning streak of 10 matches that improved to 12 with no trouble in the first two rounds at Flushing Meadows. In the third round, I had an epic battle with my pal Todd Martin. I outlasted him 6-4 in the fifth, and then beat an old nemesis, Guy Forget. In the quarterfinals, Alexander Volkov of Russia played like he had a plane to catch. I'm not sure anyone ever packed it in as quickly or obviously as he did, even though this was a Grand Slam quarterfinal. I'd like to think it was because he saw no chance against me, but I know better. Some of these guys are like finely tuned race cars. They're fast, but prone to spinning off the track without warning the moment they lose a little confidence or face a challenge that makes them uncomfortable. In the semis, I handled Jim Courier in four fast sets and found myself in my second US Open final. This time though, I wasn't going up against a fellow prodigy and peer. I was facing a seasoned, extremely cool competitor who had battled his way to the final, Sweden's Stefan Edberg. Edberg and I had a few things in common. We were both reserved, shy, old-school sportsmen. Although Stefan grew up in Sweden, he went against the grain in that clay court haven and switched to a one-handed backhand, much like I had, because he wanted to play attacking tennis. Edberg was a prodigy too, but in a slightly different way. He'd won a junior, 18 and under, Grand Slam. As a pro, he'd been through something similar to the struggle I was unconsciously dealing with in 1992. The battle to become a great competitor, as well as a great talent. In Stefan's case, the catchphrase that haunted him wasn't ton of bricks, but fire in the belly. Early in his career, Stefan was accused of lacking a gut-level, burning desire to win. In a good example of bad timing, 
I was catching Edberg just as he was proving the critics wrong. The previous year, he had taken over my US Open title with a flawless, artful, straight sets deconstruction of Courier's straightforward game. The breakthrough put to rest the fire in the belly issue, because nobody without that kind of motivation won the US Open. It was simply too tough and grueling an event. This was doubly true for European players at the US Open. Many of them just never got comfortable with the conditions, which usually included suffocating humidity and heat, sizzling hot hard courts, and the chaotic, egalitarian New York vibe. Any remaining doubters were convinced by the epic way Edberg went about defending his U.S. title at Flushing Meadows in 1992. In his last three matches before the final, he was down a break in the fifth and final set against high-quality opponents, Richard Krychek, Ivan Lendl, and Michael Chang. The semi against Michael remains one of the all-time great matches, in terms of the struggle, if not the quality of play. At 5 hours and 26 minutes, it set a new record as the longest match in recorded US Open history. Lanky and tall, Edberg was a great mover. He lived and died by his kick serve, which he liked to follow to the net, where he could use his superb volley to cut off all but the sharpest of returns. Stefan's game plan was straightforward. Get to the net. He wasn't afraid to surprise you by employing the chip-and-charge tactic, returning the serve with a sharp slice or dink, and charging forward to take the net and challenge the server to make a great passing shot. Closing. That was his game in a nutshell. The matchup was simple. We both wanted to attack. I thought I had an edge in power, especially on service, and on defense, I gave away less than he did with his weaker wing, the forehand. I went into the match knowing I had to keep the service returns low. I practiced getting up and over the kick serve to rip back low, flat returns. With a guy like Stefan, I couldn't afford to think too much about exactly where to put the return. If he was on his game, I would have enough trouble just getting the return low enough to make him lift and float his volley over the net, thereby giving me a look at a passing shot. Also, I wanted to attack Stefan's forehand and serve well enough to stay out of those pressure situations that would invite him to chip and charge. I would wait for the inevitable small opportunities that, if converted, could turn the match around. When I woke up on the morning of the final, I felt great. I had accomplished a lot getting to the US Open final. I felt pretty content, and that probably explains why I didn't feel nervous at all. I was happy to have gotten to the final. It was a blustery day, with the wind swirling around even more than usual in the bowl of Armstrong Stadium. There was one mitigating factor when the match got underway. I was suffering from cramps and dehydration, owing to a case of food poisoning. It was something I downplayed because I believe in the Aussie rule. If you're fit enough to start the match, you're fit enough not to make excuses about why you lost. And ultimately, my performance in the match had much less to do with any physical issue than mental, emotional ones that were coming to a head. I came out pretty strong and won the first set, but it was a terrible struggle from there. The new Stefan Edberg was on full display. He was full of emotion, pumping his fists, yelling, doing everything to show that he had fire in his belly. He won the second set. At the critical juncture of the match, a third set tiebreaker, I threw in an ill-timed double fault to give Edberg a 6-4 lead and double set point. Stefan capitalized to go up two sets to one, and then I double faulted away the first game of the fourth set. In a blink, it was 3-0 to Edberg. I went through the motions the rest of the way. I packed it in. 
Afterward, I told the press. As the match wore on, I was running out of gas. I was very, very tired, maybe more mentally than physically. Mentally, I was telling myself that my body just couldn't do it, and as a result, it didn't. Once again, I was talking from the heart, but what I said was a curious combination of truth and cop-out. For instance, my physical problems were fatigue and dehydration, yet I admitted that I was more tired mentally. That's not even logical, but nobody picked up on it. I admitted that my mind was telling me that my body couldn't do it, when my mind should have been telling my sore body that I could. In short, I was explaining away my inability and unwillingness to dig deep. It wasn't just that I had played lousy. I also played without heart, which is a greater sin. In the aftermath, I was stunned and confused. Over the next few weeks, while I recovered from the long, hard-court summer, a few painful truths would slowly crystallize in my mind. Shortly after the U.S. Open, we played our Davis Cup semifinal against Sweden on indoor clay at the Target Center in Minneapolis. Because clay was not my best surface, I played only doubles with McEnroe. We toughed out a real war with one of the best double squads of the era, Stefan Edberg and Anders Jared. This was my first Davis Cup experience as a doubles specialist, and I was surprised by how much I enjoyed the assignment. Doubles is an enjoyable sideshow at most tournaments but it has a starring role in Davis Cup because of the format. As the third and only match on Saturday, doubles is the kingmaker in cup play. Most Davis Cup teams that enjoyed long-term success were anchored by a great doubles team. When a tie is 1-1, which is often the case after the Friday opening singles matches, getting to that 2-1 lead can be huge. It also didn't hurt my own enthusiasm level or results that my partner on some key occasions was McEnroe. Remember, it was McEnroe's own longtime partner, Peter Fleming, who famously quipped when asked to name the best doubles team of all time, John McEnroe and anyone. We went on to meet the Swiss team in the 1992 final on an indoor hard court in Fort Worth, Texas. Gorman, perhaps still mindful of Lyon, decided to play it safe. He named Courier and Andre, who were both playing very well, to the single slots and put me down for doubles, again partnered with Johnny Mack. That was fine with me. Andre had proven himself a great Davis Cup singles player. He's an emotional guy who really gets into all the hoopla. Jim was right there with Andre as a Davis Cup warrior. He gave his all, he was gritty and very cool under pressure. We had arguably the greatest Davis Cup team of all time and a pretty stubborn bunch. In the opening ceremony, the promoter wanted us to wear these 10 gallon hats and it kind of freaked Jim out. He snapped, I'm not wearing that stupid hat. So, there were no cowboy hats. The Swiss had a very tough two-man team, consisting of Jakob Lasek and Marc Rosset. Both guys were very good on fast courts, which is unusual because most Europeans prefer the slower clay. So much for our home court, fast court advantage. Lasek was in the midst of his career year in singles, and Rosset was a guy with a game as tricky as it was big. He could play serve and volley, even though his career moment of glory occurred on slow clay a few months earlier, when he won the singles gold medal at the Barcelona Olympic Games. Andre won the opening rubber, but then Rosset showed his medal with an upset of Jim. McEnroe and I would be playing Lasek and Rosset in what suddenly looked like a critical doubles match. And when we lost the first two sets, both in tiebreakers, 
it looked like tiny Switzerland might pull off one of the most shocking of Davis Cup upsets, and on U.S. soil, no less. John was in one of his McEnroe moods. Throughout the match, he trash-talked Lassick, a very quiet but cool guy who minded his own business and got along with everyone. John was suffering and coming dangerously close to losing control. But then he was unlike anyone else and that he often played better after going nuts. Some of the line calls in the first two sets seemed dodgy, and in the third set, John finally lost it over another parent bad call. He started in on the umpire and he just kept going on. He yelled at the official and he yelled at our own Captain Gorman for not making more of a fuss and standing up for us. He was just going ballistic in general, in any direction he wanted, long after the point in question was over. Finally, I just lost it myself. I turned on John and snapped, John, it's over, done with. Let's not harp on what happened three games ago. It's time to move on, man. For some reason, my own little outburst had two welcome results. It calmed John down, emotionally if not verbally, and it fired me up. We won the third set and adjourned for what was then still the required 10-minute break before the start of the fourth set. John and I came off the break with wild eyes and fire in our bellies. It was one of those rare occasions when I got into the emotion of it all. I was pumping my fist and yelling. McEnroe must have said, come on, let's kick ass a thousand times. We clawed and fist pumped and yelled our way to a not very pretty but extremely relieving win, 6-2 in the fifth. Although I became very emotional in that match, in general, John and I were like a Jekyll and Hyde pairing. I tended to be cool and forward-looking. He was hot-tempered and all wrapped up in the moment, always ready for an altercation. He thrived on that, and I understood it. We were good for each other. He pumped me up with his emotional outbursts, even if I didn't show it, and I calmed him down with my self-control, even if he was, externally, still the same contentious, fiery player. The next day, after Jim beat Lasik to clinch the tie, I became a Davis Cup champ. It mattered not at all that I had played only doubles in the final. I had done my share all year and felt as proud and entitled as if I had played every singles match for the United States in our drive to win the cup. But throughout the fall, I kept hearkening back to the loss at the Open to Edberg. It was eating away at my guts. I occasionally thought about what Dad had said a lifetime earlier in Shreveport. I had been a U.S. Open finalist, sure, but who cared? The guy whom the press and everybody else was interested in was Edberg. The real giveaway, I came to realize, was that I hadn't been nervous before the match. There are two kinds of nervous in tennis. Bad nervous, which can make you freeze up, play an inhibited game, or choke. And good nervous, which is a sign that the match you are about to play really means a lot to you. A sign that you can't wait to get out there to mix it up with your opponent, even if you're not guaranteed the win. It's the kind of nervous that makes some great football players throw up before a big game. I also thought about how the final hadn't been a well-played match. Sure, the wind might have had something to do with it. My food poisoning may have been a factor. Stefan's own fatigue, after his death march to the final, was in the mix too. But this is what I kept thinking. If he didn't play that well, and I didn't play that well, why did he win? And the answer dawned on me, slowly, over a matter of weeks. For the first time, I understood and could articulate the truth. I lost because I had packed it in, and it was part of a pattern.
Coming face to face with that reality enabled me to admit that on two critical occasions in 1992, the Wimbledon semi with Gorin and the Open final with Edberg, I had more or less quit while I still had some reserves to call on. The Edberg match was the straw that broke the camel's back. If I didn't care, who would? I had wasted two big moments, and there was no guarantee that I would experience those moments again. My future was no longer a matter of how good I could get in order to put myself in a position to win big events. I was there. I was plenty good. I wasn't developing anymore in any significant technical or physical way. I was developed, except in my grass court game. The real question was, did I want to win majors? The Edberg match forced me to confront that. I slowly came to a realization about myself that wasn't very pretty. I didn't tell anyone, not even dad. It would have been easy enough to do. All I would have had to say was, listen, I have a confession to make. I packed it in on some big occasions, but I internalized it and got no forgiveness from the harshest judge of them all, myself. My inner dialogue went on for about two months. Why make this thing more complicated than it needs to be? If you see the other guy struggling, why follow suit? True, I'd been feeling a little overwhelmed by my swift climb to the top of the game, but I was also a little too content with what I was achieving. Why? I finally asked myself, are you being such a pussy? It took me some years to come up with the answer, and here it is, in its most simple form. Everybody has a place in this world, and spends a good part of his mature life carving out his niche, the zone where he is comfortable. Some guys, they get to number one and they think, I don't really like it up here, it's too lonely, too stressful, too demanding. So they settle back a little. They find a comfort zone at number three, or five, or whatever. I could have done that. A part of me was doing that early in my career. The truth is that when you're anywhere but at number one, you can hide. You can get to the second week of majors regularly, win one now and then, earn a lot of respect and money, and lead a great, stress-free life. I honestly can't tell you why my conversation with commitment took this tack, but it did. I decided that I had this great talent, and I wasn't taking care of it. I had the gift, and I was turning away from it, at least on some of the very occasions when it was maybe the only thing that could pull me through. It wasn't going to be good enough for me to just be in the mix. It would nag and wear at me. I realized that the game was not about getting somewhere, but staying somewhere. Some of us, we get there, and we don't want to let it go. We don't want to see some other guy take it. And that's ultimately what makes you a warrior, a fully formed, mature competitor. You can't really teach someone determination, although you can nurture it. It's something that is either in you or not, and you have to figure it out as an individual. And if you decide you need to be number one, you have to realize you can't hide. You have to get fitted for the bullseye on your back and get used to living with it. I was ready. That 1992 Edberg match was my Rubicon, my version of that famous Muhammad Ali moment when he threw his Olympic gold medal into the Ohio River one night. At the end of 1992, I was determined to have a huge 1993. That's it for now. Thank you.